Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Deuteronomy chapter number 6 in your Bibles. Deuteronomy chapter number 6. And of course we're in the midst today, uh, really the start of a new uh, Sunday educational year for our Sunday school or junior churches. Uh, And as we look back over the years, uh, it's been a privilege. I know as we printed out our certificates in particularly uh, for this past week for today, I noted that I had some from many, many years ago. Some of those folks have gone on and married and uh, soon or have children of their own. Some are in college. We look back over that and we see what a wonderful treasure that God has given us. Um, when folks get to having the idea about education in religious things, and I use that term very broadly, a lot of times, uh, parents sometimes, certainly uh, in a general society, sees of it having no benefit whatsoever. In fact, the theory of today really is uh, that your children will be born into a home where the home has, by virtue of the parents, some type of religious affiliation, but they do not want to instruct their children in anything of a religion at all because, after all, that's a personal decision. Let that child make up their own mind. And of course, we're living in a society as well that uh, a growing, uh, growing minority of people have anything to do with anything called religion at all. And I can understand that from many a person. Um, religion as a whole has done much harm on the face of the earth. There's been many atrocities committed in the name of religion. And those are not to be misunderstood as what I'm talking about when I talk about a biblical truth. There's a distinction between the two. Biblical truth is often violated by those that espouse themselves to be friends of that truth. That's even true of the scriptures. I think of one named Judas Iscariot who walked for some three and a half years with the the Lord. He saw miracles performed, uh, feats that were impossible for someone of humanity to engage in. Uh, Not the least of these was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Yet this same Judas would go out and for a few pieces of silver would betray the creator of all the universe. Much atrocity has been done in the name of religion. Yet, that does not mean that there are not biblical absolutes. In fact, we'll talk about those. I was posed with a question some time ago, what is it that a good moral man cannot do that a Bible-believing Christian can do? We could talk of that and say that even a good moral man that does not espouse the truth of the Word of God, a good moral man could in fact love his neighbor, could have a level of kindness to his neighbor. I've seen that in my community many times, where especially during the winter, uh, we've got some folks, uh, younger folks that will go about and find, they know where the senior folks live and they'll help shovel driveways and walkways. It doesn't have to be saved in order to do that. So that is not something that a moral man cannot do, have some kindness for his neighbor. Uh, have goodwill towards his community. Yes, both can do that. It is not to really be believed that every founder of this great country was in fact a Bible-believing Christian. I don't think that's the case. I think there's a grand difference in being a Bible-believing Christian and one that respected or saw values in the truths of the Word of God. We could speak that uh, a good man might would lay down his life for someone. I think of the many folks that engage in uh, emergency situations and go in and rescue people. You don't have to be a believer to do that. In fact, there are many unbelievers that engage in that selfless type of life. But as it relates to the truths of the Word of God, there are a number of things that only a Bible-believing person can do that this world cannot do. 
One of them at the top of this is to have a relationship with the Creator God. To know who He is. To know what He's done. To know what He's going to do. To conform their life, not to their personalities, not to their society, not to the academics, but rather to yield their members unto righteousness' sake. That's something that only a believer can do. Only a believer can commune with a three-part Godhead. Only the believer can pray to the Father, can acknowledge the working relationship of Jesus Christ that, that uh, has saved them, and to be led and to walk in the Spirit of God. Only the believer has that opportunity. Only the believer can truly read the Word of God and to see its truths illuminated by the Spirit of God and disciple, be discipled in the truths of the Word of God and discipline their lives to walk according to those truths. That's something only a believer can truly be. Only a believer can truly know the peace that passes all understanding that will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus this world. Uh, 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 keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This world knows not of that type of peace. In fact, the peace of God and the peace of this world are distinctly different. The peace of this world is just the absence of hostility. It's just the absence of conflict. It is, as if you will, being in the eye of the great storm that has just recently come ashore, waiting for the next portion of that great, great hurricane to rip about and to cast us onto the next shoal. But the Christian sees not this, for they abide in him. If my words abide in you and you abide in my words, what a wonderful privilege that we will bear fruit, John chapter 15. And so for the believer, knowledge is, yes, that there are eyes in every storm. There are portions in which the storms of life come not as hard as they will come once or have come in the past. But to the believer, there is an ever-present peace. There is an ever-present joy. There is a glorious desire to commune with the God in heaven. This is what I speak of when I speak of biblical truth. And one that is not in Christ cannot truly know of all these blessed things. Yes, as we look and study the Word of God, there are many wonderful things upon which the morality of any civilization will be blessed if it's built upon it. I think of, of course, the Ten Commandments. What a great foundation for any society to acknowledge and have no other God before Him. That's a wonderful thing, to recognize the holiness of a Creator God, to recognize providence, to recognize an open door, to recognize that God has given good things to you. That's a wonderful thing for any society to acknowledge the higher power that exists as opposed to assuming that all power comes by their innate hand. It's a wonderful thing to think of a society, a society in which would have stole the wonders of marriage. Thou shalt not commit adultery is present in Exodus chapter 20. What a wonderful thing for a society to build a foundation that is established with some morality that is present. To know definitive distinctions that God himself has endowed. What a wonderful thing for society to recognize the noble commands of God it pertains to lying or to murder. Yes, both forbidden in the Decalogue of the Old Testament. What a wonderful thing to have a society that could have a Bible and say, do you solemnly swear to tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth? What a wonderful thing to have that society. But a society that would have all that is not the same thing as a society that knows the God of truth. There are many today that would identify as Christians because their grandma went to church or because occasionally their parents went to church. 
But going to church does not make you a biblical Christian any more than going into a garage makes you a vehicle. It doesn't work that way. But many, that's all they can identify with. They don't know the truths of the Word of God because they've been told that the Word of God is nothing more than a fable. They've been conditioned in their mindset to believe that the Word of God is fallacious as it concerns creation. That mankind and all that would follow were not created by an omnipotent God, but rather were the sudden spontaneous actions of a chemical explosion that over millions of years begat you as a species, and one day another species will begat of you. But when you die, it's just the end of all things. It's not the beginning of an eternal existence, either with or without God. Well, if there was ever a time in our society for parents really to engage in the responsibility to teaching their children, that time is now and that society is the one in which we live. Notice here in our text... I want to draw our text this morning from verse number 7. We'll go back to verse 1 in just a moment. But note this. Thou shalt teach them diligently. There's a prerequisite, a condition, that every individual must be taught the truths of the Word of God. That's why here at church we put such emphasis upon it. Less emphasis on all of the entertainment and the activities that occur. And by the way, those can be good and wholesome. But at the end of the day, a child can learn to paint ball or ski or do anything like that. A moral man can instruct them well in that. But only someone that has a biblical relationship with the Almighty God can participate in training anyone or teaching anyone the truths of the Word of God. This passage is the premier passage regarding the importance of educating each generation in the work of God. So our question to consider this morning is, why? Why be concerned about biblical instruction at all? Why not just let it happen? Why not just let it be spontaneous? Many of you are preparing to conclude your gardening season. And any gardener would know that fruit does rarely, truly happen in a spontaneous environment. You'll plant, and you'll weed, and you'll weed, and you'll treat, and you'll prepare. Why, just this morning, I put in what I hope will be a second crop of green beans, just, I don't know, about 15, 20 little plants. And I realized, my soul, it's going to be July for the next four days. So you know what I did? I didn't leave it up to happenstance. I went and filled up my gallon container and I watered them. Why? Understanding the importance of preparation. And so too is the teaching of the Word of God. The preparation for the heart, the mind, and the soul for the things of God. Why is it important to educate in this? Notice if you will, number one, in verses one and three, he talks about Now these are the commandments, the statutes, the judgments which the Lord your God commanded you to teach. Keep that phrase in your mind. He commanded you to teach. And then draw your eyes down to verse number 2. That thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I have commanded thee and thy son and thy son's sons 
all the days of thy life that thy days may be prolonged. You see a response to a truth. And then thirdly, in verse number three, just notice this phrase, that it may be well with thee. In these three verses, you really have an answer to that question. And one of the reasons why to have biblical education in the lives and heart of every individual is this, that God might be pleased. That is a premier reason that God may be pleased. Going back to verse number one, he might be pleased because you have submitted to his commands. You obeyed God. God wants there to be the continual teaching of his word. It's experientially true. Do you not have a Bible? Yes. Why did God allow the preservation of the word of God? So there can be access to the knowledge of him and the revealed text so that individuals can take the word of God and read for themselves the truths of the word of God. You see, there was a time, not to bore you with the history behind it, but there was a time in the English world in the 1300s where the only Bibles that had were in the high language of Latin in the Western world. And the only ones that could read Latin at all were the highly educated. And despite that, the voluminous book that was present was so large that it was not that you could take it with you. And the expense of replicating that book was beyond your capacity to be able to purchase. So if you wanted to hear what the Word of God said, you had to come and you had to listen to someone translate it roughly into your language and hope that they were not manipulating the text and somehow draw from that some level of truth. And it was a man named John Wycliffe. He was known historically as the morning star of the Reformation. He was with a group of very sincere genuine, godly individuals called the Lollards. He said, I have a brilliant idea. God wants all to know Him. What say you that we could take and just take the portion of Bible, take the whole Bible, but portions at a time perhaps, and, and translate them from the high Latin language to the common language of English so that even a poor plowboy might be able to read the truths of the Word of God. So the 1300s. There is no mistake about this. That the dawning of the Reformation and the conclusion of the dark ages of history coincides with the access to the Word of God. It is not an accident. What brought man out of the darkness in the Western world, what illuminated his path, what changed all that was present, was his access to the Word of God. You see, Christian Bible-believing teaching is important because God has commanded it and prioritized it. Notice, if you will, a second reason that we articulated. Not only that, there is the responsibility to keep it so that the days of thy life may be prolonged. The Word of God has with it when one responds correctly to the truth. It's life-giving. It's quickening. I think of 1 Timothy chapter 4 very often. Godliness, he says. Godliness. Timothy, Paul commanded, exercise thyself unto godliness. Why? Why? 
for godliness is profitable in all things, having the promise of the life that now is and of that which is come. I would note that the best the moral man could ever do is exercise himself physically. And yet with all of his grand exercising physically, there is just a modicum, just a modicum, just just a tiny little bit of profit in that. For it lasts as long as this earthland vessel lasts. Surely we're told that that life appeareth for a little while and then soon passeth like a vapor and vanishes into history. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. But my friend, godliness prepares you for eternity. If I had no other reason to engage in systematic study and the articulation and teaching of the Word of God to others, it would be because I know that's the means by which God is pleased. Because He commanded it. Because it has the promise of extension of life. Notice number three, and this is the third wonderful reason. Glean because it uh, it pleases God. It may be well with thee. You know, people live their entire lives and wonder about the clauses of morality. What's right and what's wrong? Whether they did something correct or whether they did something incorrect. Whether or not they're going to live a life. I I went to the deathbed of a man once when I was a young man. It made an indelible impression upon me. For he admonished me. He said, don't live like I lived or you'll have many regrets. And kind of kind of like a parasite that just got in me. And I've thought about that many times. A life of regret. Isn't it human? Isn't that just the extension of human existence? I live life and I would hope that I don't have regrets all the while knowing I'm going to have regrets. I would note that a Bible-believing individual that has immersed themselves in the Word of God can answer that question forthwith. And they can tell you that regret is tethered to the human existence. But to the child of God that obeys the truths of scriptures, that embraces them as the psalmist David says five times in the 119th Psalm, with my whole heart I have sought thee, will be the individual at the end of their life. Can answer like the Apostle Paul, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth for me it's laid up a crown of righteousness. And not for me only, but also for all those that love thy appearance. Apostle Paul knew personal failure. He knew personal failure. He was there when the deacon at the church at Jerusalem was being stoned. They would dig this fellow in and they would plant him waist deep in dirt. And then anybody that will, especially those of the Sanhedrin, would pelt him with stone. His family perhaps looking on. Loved ones, children looking on. All for the cause of Christ. And there consenting to his death was Saul of Tarshish. And all those laid their coats at his feet. I'm going to tell you that's an event that doesn't go away tomorrow. It scarred him. And yet he relates to other children of God, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Now you look for a man that saw a transformation. He's converted. He's experienced the new birth. That which was old is put away. He describes this in Philippians chapter 3. He said to be made conformable unto his sufferings. To be in fellowship with him. 
I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, that human element of me that has desire that is directly opposed to the things of God. I forget it. All the longing of personal accomplishment. He said, I count them but not that I might win the excellency of Jesus Christ. He said, in reaching forth, I press towards the mark. He said, I persecute with all the fabric of my being how I live each day of my life that I might preach the gospel of him that has sent me. And at the end of his life, he looked at Timothy and he said, Timothy, finish the course. The idea there is that of a water libation offering, a drink offering. Much like David of old when his friends brought him of that vessel from the well of Bethlehem and he poured it out. Do you remember that? He was not being blasphemous. Not at all. He rather, in that custom of the day, was a way in which you gave it unto the Lord. He was worshiping God because the sacrifice that these individuals had made for him was far greater than he felt they should have made and worthy only of a divine worship of the Almighty God and he gave that unto the Lord. That's the same imagery that Paul's given. I'm ready to be poured out. I'm finished. I've kept the faith. Oh, that doesn't sound like one that lives with echoing regret in their life and remorse and wishing they could go back. This is a man from the moment of his conversion forward said, Lord, what must I do? And when the Lord had answered that, this was a man that only did that which God had called him to do. Only a Christian can do that. Only someone immersed in the truths of the Word of God can live a life that pleases Him. Why educate in biblical truths? Because that pleases God. Notice a second one. Notice, if you will, the Shiva. The Shema, rather, here in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Not only does education and the truths of the Word of God please God, but it also presents the God to the hero as well. That's an important thing. Don't miss it. Why train? Because only through training through biblical truths will God be truly presented. Who is God? What is God? This statement, verse 4. The believing Hebrew, the Shema, the saying. This single verse set apart Old Testament piety from all the religions of the world. Our Lord is one Lord. And there's only one way to Him. There's only one word of Him. I had two fine individuals knock on my door this past week. Two elder sisters. And they knocked. And I opened the door. And they asked me if I went to church anywhere. And I said, yes, go to my church. They didn't ask me what kind. They didn't ask me what I did. And I decided that that wasn't part of the conversation we need to have. And they said, would you like Bible study about God? And I said, yes, I've had Bible studies about God. And one lady looked at me. She said, well, uh, are you familiar with the Book of Mormons? And I said, yes, I have a copy. Oh, she said, well, we're going to give you one. You have a copy? I said, I have a copy. I'm pretty sure. Have you read it? And I said, yes, it's been a while. I've read the Book of Mormon. And she said, this book is very special. I said, please tell me why this book is so special. It was written by Joseph Smith, correct? Well, he translated it. And I saved my sarcasm at that moment. And she said, this completes the Word of God. 
That's how you have it. I smiled at her and I said, what do you do if the Book of Mormon conflicts with the Word of God? Because it certainly does. Well, let's have a Bible study. As time progressed, the other elders stepped in and hustled things apart a little bit and broke up and they went on. I hope they stopped by again. But think about that. Joseph Smith, 1840s, was given by the angel Marconi this vision. So you're telling me that only for the last 150 years people knew who God was and what he had done. Our God is one God. He's not ten gods. Prior to this passage, or actually in competition, in, in and around this time frame, the world had many gods. They had an innumerable host of gods. Listen to this passage in Romans. It's Romans chapter 1. Listen to this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men that hold the truth in unrighteousness. That was true of all of those that died in a great flood. They held the truth in unrighteousness. Well, how's, how's that possible? Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination. That's their thinking. And their heart, their desires was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became as fool. Now note this. And changed. Romans chapter 1 verse 23. The glory of an uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man to birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Here's a society that rejecting the one true God of heaven, though in natural revelation he has expounded upon himself, you can look at the glory and see the testimony, the power of God through his creation. And all humanity seized upon that, but changed God into their own image. False religion always results from the in, uh, inclusivity of man's mind and therefore sees multiple gods. You want to know why there's so many gods? Because man denied God's singular truth and embraced every form of thinking as truth and therefore developed gods. Now, friend, don't think for a moment that the society that we live in doesn't have their own gods. They do. They have the God of education. My soul folks spend hundreds of thousands of thousands of dollars in education with no guarantee at all that that will ever be transformative in their life. Sadly, sometimes parents are guilty of that. It may be in an innocent fashion that we start and we want them to thrive and to get the best and to do what they can with the resources God's given. But our society's put a tremendous value on education. You can go down around this society in some of the most rural areas and see magnificent temples to education that exist. While all around the society around them lies in somewhat penury. You listen to political leaders of the day. Give more. Give more. Give more. 
education without the truths of the Word of God only makes man a more clever devil. And that's where our society's moved. Why? They have forsaken the guide of their youth. Our God is one God. God must be presented. Notice a third thing in verse number five. Thou and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Why train in the things of the truths of the word of God, that God might be pleased, that God might be presented. Number three, that God might be preeminent. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Hey, there's something that a moralist can never do. Love God. How do I love God? I think if I'm going to love God, that speaks to us of a requirement of knowledge. I've got to know who He is. I can't say that I love someone truly that I do not know. I can learn to love someone I did not know. But to have no knowledge of who God is, how can you truly love Him? There's many a parent that would say they love the Lord their God, but when it comes to the things of this life, there are far more things important to them than the truths of the Word of God. And a child can be reared in that home and never truly know that their parents loved God preeminently in their life. A child will leave that home not seeing the necessity of making God preeminent in their life. And why should they? They never knew anything about him. Oh, mom and dad were enshrouded in the activities of life. Daddy could tell you everything about fishing and hunting. Mama could tell you everything about science and designs and various types of vanities that go hither and yonder. And mom had a keen eye for matching colors and draperies. Mom had a keen eye in mathematics and accounting. And dad, oh, he was a wonderful craftsman. Yes, but what did they know about God? The key to loving God is knowing Him. It's a prerequisite, really. One has no ability to love someone that they do not know. And sadly, in our society, like so many others, really, individuals don't even know anything about God. They just assume things about God. Oh, how many times somebody will make a statement about God and you say, well, where's that at in the Bible? I don't know. I think it's in there. Where? That don't hold up in a law court, does it? If I violated something, I'm hauled before a, a district judge. He's going to quote the law to me. Right? Well, I didn't know that. It's hard to follow a law you don't know. So it is with the love of God. Hard to love someone that you don't know. A love of God requires a remittance of worship. If I love Him, I'm going to worship Him. I'm going to give Him praise. Oh, what a common thing for a child to be reared in a home that loves God. There should be uh, the, the knowledge of God, but there should be the remittance of worship. It should not be a strange thing for dad or mom to talk about the giving of thanks. And I'm just not talking around mealtime. It shouldn't be a strange thing for a child to walk in and see mom and dad open their Bible. It shouldn't be a strange thing at all for a child on Sunday or Saturday evening to see the parents say, hey, let's get everything together so we can go to the house of God together. 
should be a strange thing at all. Why? Remittance of worship. Think about loving God. There should be a resolve of supremacy. He should be first. He should be first. Sometimes we get this idea that my wife's first, my husband's first. If your husband is the chief love of your life, then you are not loving God like you ought to. I didn't say it, God said it. He's supreme. If you love your children more than you love God, then you are not loving God like you ought to. If you love your bowl team most in your life, if you know more about your bowl team than you do the God of heaven, then you are not loving God like God said He wishes and wants to be loved. You pick the narrative. He must be supreme. And it's a resolution every child of God should strive for. Undivided love for God. That's why certain things in life Christians just need to put aside. It's not because they're inherently wrong. It's because it can very easily in our life become something that distracts from the supremacy of the love by which I owe my God in heaven. If I'm going to love God, that He might have the preeminence in my life, I'm going to radiate desire. I'm going to want to be around the people of God. I'm going to want to be in the house of God. I'm going to want to be in prayer. I'm going to want to walk truthfully in season and out of season. The scripture in the 42nd Psalm talks about the heart panting after the water brook. So panteth my soul after thee, O God. There's a radiance of desire. There's a response of obedience. Said if my word abide in you, you shall keep my commandments. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3. We keep his commandments and they are not grievous unto us. Oh my, there's many as we come to the point of loving God where we say that one reason to instruct in biblical truths is to make God preeminent in our life, but we struggle to make God preeminent because really balanced against these five biblical truths, we really don't love God preeminent. What a travesty. Note in those verses, we love Him in heart, soul, and might. We think of heart, that's our inner man. That is the seat of our emotions. That is our thought process. I'm to love Him inwardly. I'm to love Him in my soul, that's my upward man. Exodus chapter 20, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I'm to love Him with my might. That's my strength. That's my outer man. That's my being. No wonder Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 prayed that God would sanctify your whole body and soul and spirit. Note verse number 4. Or rather, we're in verse number 7. Verse 6, rather. And these words which I have commanded this day shall be in thine heart. Let me just put it this way. You want to know why to instruct biblically that God may be made personal. Shall be in thine heart. It's a very personal thing. I have a prerequisite to love God and know God and follow God even if nobody else is doing it so. It should be a very personal thing. 
I'm going to follow after truth. I'm going to follow after the truths of the word of God. Notice verse 7. I should have the instruction in biblical truth that God might be publicized. Note verse 7. Thou shalt teach them diligently thy children. When thou walkest, or thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. They might be publicized. If you will, they might just ooze out of me. There's the instruction of God in a formal setting, but oh, how great the informal truths of the Word of God. That they just flowed from Mama's lips. She is talking to us. At bedtime, the parents invoke the truths of the Word of God. In times of discipline, that the discipline came not just because they displeased the parents, but rather because the parents saw the displeasure it created from the eyes of God. Even in the informal things. When it came to me making the end of those adolescent years, and there's now the dawning of a new life that is upon you in a new chapter, that they instruct the child, hey, make sure that you're walking with God, that your character will be established, that you're walking with godly, that you're not in the counsel of the sinners, nor standing in the seat of the scorners. Make sure your delight is in the things of God. And in that law you do meditate therein day and night. Then shalt thou make thy way prosperous, and then shalt thou have good success. That's Psalm 1. Even in the informal things. Notice the adverb there. Thou shalt teach them how? Diligently. Diligently. The sluggard desires the gain of diligence without the diligence that it gains. I had a preacher of many years ago named Charles Bridges, a puritanical fellow. Diligence is important in the area of teaching. It should be expressed. It should be in our expression, I should say. Jude says, I gave all diligence to writing to you concerning the common salvation. Diligence should be present in our experience. He said, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Diligence should be present in our enhancements. Besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. Diligence should be present in our involvement as we develop in the things of God. We desire that every one of you show the same diligence to the hope of full assurance to the end. There will be a level of diligence, persistence. Why? Why should it be that way? That God might be publicized. I'll give you one more. Notice, if you will, in verse 12. Why should there be the training in biblical truths? Look in verse 12. Then beware, lest thou forget the Lord which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Biblical training must continue. Yes, in one sense, we look at that in the lives of our children, but be not remiss to know that you need biblical training. I need biblical training. The depths of the truths of God are never going to be mined fully. You have a responsibility to be consistent 
abounding in truth. Yes, you might move to the place where you know all the books of the Bible, frontwards and backwards. And maybe perhaps you could venture to tell all the number of chapters in each of Old and New Testament books. And perhaps you could speak of some of the great doctrines of the truth. Friend, you're never to the place where you've exhausted the knowledge of God. Why? Verse number 12. Because you can forget. Why should we train in biblical truth that God might be permanent in our lives? Lest thou forget the Lord thy God. Our society and many, many Christians place much emphasis in things with no moral and no eternal value. Oft times we're more concerned and excited about athleticism, academia, and advancement than we are with biblical foundational training. Yet our life is only a vapor. It soon vanishes away and eternity lies forever ahead. Instruction in biblical truth, both parentally and ecclesiastically, are far better than the riches of the world. For what shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Only godliness is profitable in the life that now is and of that which is to come. What preparation are you making? What transmission of your passions are you giving? The importance of biblical training. Thou shalt teach them. Let's stand with you. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 17112. And visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time, 